uh, we have uh, Paul Anthony Wallace, uh, you know, author of uh, Escaping Eden. It's uh, one of the uh, top bestsellers on the planet right now. And uh, here, let me read uh, quickly uh, Paul's um, about from uh, his website. And uh, guys, keep an eye out for all the uh, links that I will be sharing because there's a bunch of them. So Paul Anthony Wallace is a popular speaker, researcher, and author of books on spirituality and mysticism. Today, his works probe wor world mythology and ancestral narratives for their insight into human origins and human potential. His book, Escaping from Eden, has been hailed by George Nuri as this generation's chariots of the gods. Paul hosts the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube and co-hosts the Fifth Kind TV in partnership with Gaia TV. Wow, I've really liked that. And, uh, you know, Paul and I hooked up uh, there uh, a few couple months ago now through uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Evan and uh, Stephen Strong. And uh, speaking of those guys, they will be coming up next. Uh, you know, I always enjoy their uh, their work. Uh, they're fantastic people, and uh, you know, I'm so happy that uh, you know Evan, uh, you know, hooked us up, and uh, you know, we're uh, developing this wonderful uh, friendship. Uh, you know, and I hope to uh, see that continue uh, throughout the years. Uh, you know, you have just so much to offer. You know, I've uh, gone to your channel, and uh, you know, I just simply can't get enough of it. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I love your voice. Uh, you know, it's so soothing. I find that uh, you know when you're narrating your videos uh, you know I just kick back and uh, as I'm reading my books or I'm researching you know I have your channel in the background and you're speaking and uh, you know and I'm taking notes and you know it's just a wealth of information that you have to you have to give and uh, you know and, it's, and how you deliver it is uh, you know another thing that uh, you know I really 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 like because you put it in such terms that you know, it's not confusing and, uh, you know, it comes off and it's easy, it's very palatable and it's easy to digest, makes sense. And uh, I really, really, really like that. And, uh, you know, to have the, uh, um, you know, to, to sit next to Eric Von Daniken, you know, I know that you did an interview with him there a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, he's a living legend. And, uh, you know, to have your name next to Eric Von Daniken and uh, next to the Chariots of the Gods is just an amazing, amazing accomplishment in itself. You know, uh, I don't think I, I told you this in our last show, but, uh, you know, it's because of Eric Von Daniken, like most of us, are here today uh you know i came across this book chariots of the gods i was in like grade seven and uh, you know i was in the library and i just happened to find it and i brought it home and i started reading it and then the first couple of days you know it really didn't uh you know resonate with me but then after that i picked it up again and i started reading it and and then i just couldn't put it down i read it all the way through and uh, and then i reread it and uh, you know at the in those days uh, you know, uh, my father's from Pakistan, so I was uh, raised as a Muslim. And uh, and then when I when I read Chariots of the Gods, you know, like my God, you know, it was almost like this, you know, this this enlightenment happened to me, and I began questioning everything. So I would go to my dad, and I would say, well, you know, he's saying this, and the Quran is saying this, and you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So, but uh, you know, my dad tried to explain it to me, but. Uh, you know, he didn't, uh, you know, really, you know, get that far because uh, I really got into Eric Von Daniken and I began reading his books, watching his lectures. And, uh, you know, and from there, my uh, my journey started. And uh, here I am with a man whose name is next to Eric Von Daniken. So I'm so, so very pleased to uh, have you here to uh, give us this lecture. Uh, you know, I'm going to pull out my 
pencil and my notepad, and I'm just going to start taking notes. <laughs> uh, Omar, thank you so much for that introduction. There's a little echo on the line when I speak. I don't know if you can tackle that before I get going. Okay, what I'll do is... Coming back. Yeah, so what I'll do is I'll mute myself, and uh, I think uh, after that you might be okay. So uh, right. let me try that. Uh, I'll mute, so go ahead, say a couple of words. Okay. Well, Omar, it was the same for me. I encountered Eric Von Daniken at about the same age as you. Uh, I was 11 years old, and that was really my red pill. Now, that echo is still going, which is a bit distracting. I don't know if you can hear it. No, I'm not hearing an echo at all. Uh, anybody in the uh, audience, uh, can you tell us if you're hearing an echo? Uh, Jerome says no echo. Okay. Tony says no echo. Mercedes says no echo. I wonder, is there something I can do at my end? To um, I wonder if the uh, up above top we see a, uh, a microphone with a line going through it. Uh, maybe that has something to do with something. No, next to the camera on the right-hand side. You just muted yourself. Okay. No, I'm not. Okay. How's that? Is that any better? No, I'm still getting an echo. No, that's, that's really strange. How about that? All right. No, there's still an echo there. Oh, weird. Because everybody in the crowd is saying there's no echo. All right. Um, I'll try taking my headphones out. See, see, see. That's no good. <laughs> that's, that's not going to work. <laughs> All right, I might just have to soldier on with an echo happening in my ear and try and ignore it. Hopefully it'll uh, fix itself. Uh, we found that uh, we had this problem uh, earlier on as well with uh, Michael Feely. Uh, for, uh, for a few minutes there was an echo and, uh, and then the echo just kind of just disappeared. Uh, so uh, hopefully the same thing happens here, Paul. Okay. I'll mute myself and I'll hand the stage over to you. All right, thanks, Omar. Well, you were just telling us about your red pill moment with Eric von Daniken when you were in the seventh grade. Yeah. And Eric was that for me as well. He really identified uh, a gap in our ability to explain ourselves. And his book was really a gateway book to what's become a whole industry in our generation. So it was a great pleasure to honor him the other day on the Fifth Kind TV. My book, Escaping from Eden, really hopes to be a gateway book for a new generation. And it's a book that I hope you can give to anyone. Uh, if you've got friends who really struggle with the kind of content that Omar has brought to us in this conference, and you'd love to be able to talk to them about it, Escaping from Eden is really designed for people who are very much in the mainstream, they may be very trusting of everything they hear on the TV. Um, they may be religious believers, Muslims, Christians, and they're, and they're very orthodox in their beliefs. But Escaping from Eden should be able to meet them and give you guys 
something to talk about. And that's really the goal of it, to help us have challenging topics that really question the mainstream narrative. Well, we've been looking at big questions through the talks we've heard so far. Who are we? What are we capable of? What world are we living in? And where did we come from? Um, Omar, I think you said just a little while ago, if we don't know where we came from, then we're not going to know where we're headed. And that's really what I've found as I've got into the study of world mythologies. My background is in the world of Christian ministry. For 33 years, I worked as a church doctor, a theological educator, training pastors in ministry. Um, I was an archdeacon for the Anglican Church. And in that time, I spent a lot of time with the Bible and studying the mythologies that are part of the biblical tradition. And I'm going to touch on that uh, through the talk today, but we're going to begin somewhere else. I'm going to run through about seven mythologies that flow with themes that recur in cultures all around the world. And this is the amazing thing. Um, John Shaughnessy was just talking about motifs that recur all around the world because it is a single planet. There is evidence of a global culture way, way back. And as you see the connection between mythologies from culture to culture that had apparently no contact with each other, that bigger picture becomes unavoidable. So where we're going to start is in Peru in 1532. Now, my studies have taught me there's always more than one version of every story. So my apologies to anyone who knows a different version of this story, but I'm going to begin at San Mateo Bay in Peru in 1532 when Francisco Pizarro arrived. He had his letters patent from the Pope, from the King of Spain. He was there to take that territory for Spain and to Christianize it for the Roman Catholic Church. He arrived, he was light-skinned. Uh, his officers were in white clothing. They were carrying staffs, of course, that fired bullets. And they brought a sacred book with them, which, of course, they were going to evangelize the people with. Now, all those aspects of how Francisco Pizarro and his people appeared rang some bells with the people who were living in Peru at San Mateo Bay at that time, to such an extent that much to Francisco's surprise, the locals welcomed him. Welcome. We have been waiting so long for your arrival, they told him. And then after a little bit of conversation, the local leaders say, you are Viracocha. And being a little bit shrewd, Pizarro and his men say, tell us what you know of Viracocha. And so the locals tell them about Viracocha. Viracocha, the creator the one who was pale of skin, who wore white clothes, who carried a star and had a sacred book. He's the creator. He's God. He destroyed our ancestors with a flood. And when they said that, uh, the Catholic invader said, oh, okay, you're talking about someone we call God. I'm actually not Viracocha. I'm a servant of Viracocha. And we call Viracocha God. 
And in that moment, they thought, this is great. We've really fast-tracked the evangelization of, uh, of this territory, uh, which I guess they did. But the problem with that equation made in that moment in 1532 is that Viracocha was not God at all. He was part of the local indigenous mythology. And yes, there were some overlaps with the stories that the Spanish invaders knew from their Bible, but for other reasons. The narrative of the Incas was written by Spanish linguist Juan Diaz de Betanzos, uh, and it was a collation of the mythologies as he heard them from the Inca people of Cusco. And they explained to him that Viracocha was not the creator as such, he was the patriarch of their culture. But that when Viracocha arrived, planet Earth already existed. He arrived at a lake that already existed, on a landmass that already existed. And their description of Viracocha was that he was a man of average height, with light skin, and yes, he had a staff, and he killed their ancestors in his attempt to engineer a people who would be really useful to him. And that story, that version of the story of Viracocha, became fused with other mythologies from the Andes as well, and with um, astronomical stories as well. He got equated with Saturn, and so he sort of morphed into this godlike figure. But when they equated this Viracocha who killed their ancestors with the god in whose name the invaders had come, they had done something that was very useful in terms of evangelizing the people and endorsing themselves as servants of Viracocha, people who had arrived with a Bible and a gun. And if the God figure is murderous and abusive, then the people who represent that God figure can do anything. They had their letters patent saying they could do anything to take that territory. And now they kind of had the get-go for the locals as well. And so what happened in that moment was a terrible distortion. It was a terrible irony that the locals thought, oh, let's welcome these people. They look like Viracocha. But in actual fact, that equation distorted three very important things. It distorted the whole vision of God for a start. So God suddenly changes from being a cosmic, harmonious, accessible, transcendent source to becoming an anthropomorphic, angry, violent figure that you don't want to get on the wrong side of. Maybe a useful figure if you're invading, but it's distorted uh, a true image of God or the universe or the source. So that becomes distorted. Viracocha himself becomes distorted because who he really was, what he was, has been distorted. Now he's God, and he's, he's also this violent figure. What was he? Well, you look at the parallels with other mythologies, and it seems we're looking at an extraterrestrial visitor, one of many who came and shaped the history of our ancient ancestors. But he's not an E.T. anymore. He's now God, apparently, so the Spanish uh, would have the locals believe. But then it also distorted our image of ourselves. 
Because if we've got a violent, implacable, abusive God who you cannot get on the wrong side of, then who are we? First of all, we're just earthbound animals who need to put up and shut up, who need to come to terms with this violent entity. And if you think about what happens to children in a home where the parent is abusive, violent, and alcoholic, how that fragments children's psychology, how it totally eats away at their self-esteem, well, having a God who's like that does the same to all of us. So it was really a terrible equation to make. It distorts our vision of God. God is no longer a harmonious creative force in the universe. Uh, we no longer have interesting E.T. neighbors, and we are diminished into this fearful, servile race. And that's not the only time that kind of equation has been made and that kind of distortion has been repeated. My book, Escaping from Eden, argues that that distortion has happened a number of times throughout the course of history and in cultures all around the world. What I found as I've begun making a tour of the world's mythologies and our ancestral narratives, is that very often when you come to a culture, you will find an official religion. So if you go to the Andes today, the official religion is Roman Catholicism. But there is another layer of belief lying underneath that, and that's the ancestral knowledge. That's the mythologies, the things everybody knows. And that can happen wherever you go in the world. You'll find the official religion, the official news narrative, and then there's folklore, what people know, the ancestral knowledge, what we call mythology. And very often when we talk about mythology, people hear that word and they read fiction. But it's actually indigenous knowledge. It's a great illustration, that moment in Peru, of what happened in the 6th century BCE with the Bible itself. Now, when I say the Bible, people will immediately say, oh, yes, well, that's a religious book. That's the sacred uh, scriptures for Judaism and Christianity. I've learned through my studies for Escaping from Eden that yes the bible has played that role but the bible is really a library of books and among those books are books that are not religious books books that in the beginning and in the original translation were not about god at all it's a fairly broad consensus among biblical scholars that in the sixth century bce that is when uh, an editor, a redactor, who's a scissors and paste editor, or a team of them came along and reworked the Hebrew scriptures into a single work with a single theology. Now that point, by that point in history, Judaism was firmly monotheistic. And the message they wanted the Hebrew scriptures to put out from start to finish is there is only one God. There's only one ultimate source of the universe, uh, which is a wonderful and a positive message. But it then gave them an issue with scriptures that appeared to have lots of gods in them. How are they going to handle that? And how are they going to handle these ancient stories of things called Elohim? Elohim, a plural form word that takes plural verbs and exhibits plural behaviors. 
Elohim that say to each other, let us make, let us make humans to look like us. We don't want them to look too much like us. We don't want them to be too much like us. Elohim that conflict with one another over various issues and then go to war with one another and then preside over different human colonies and send the humans to war against each other. What are they going to do with those stories? Well, what the editors did was in some places where the Elohim were clearly bad guys and doing wrong things, they would translate the word as um, demons or false gods or even chieftains. And in other places where they seem to be good guys, but they weren't God, they might translate it as messengers or angels. And then in other texts where the Elohim appeared to be in charge of everything, well, then they would translate translate it as God. So you've got this very elastic word that becomes God in a whole load of these stories. The problem with that, just like making a kocha God, is that the Elohim were not God. They were beings in the plural. They were not human and they were not from Earth. They were an advanced species visiting and colonizing planet Earth and our ancestors were bumping up against them as these Elohim, these visitors, carved up Project Earth and Project Humanity for management. Now, the moment you realize that translation has happened and ask yourself the question, what happens if I read the Elohim stories more literally? What if we just use an etymological, a root meaning for Elohim, which is the powerful ones? Well, when you do that, the stories flip and suddenly you realize you're reading a summary form of the Sumerian stories, stories of sky people, or some people would know the name Anunnaki, who came, colonized planet Earth, and carved it up for management. And so now you've got a story of these powerful ones who uh, arrive on a planet that already exists, just like Viracocha arrived in a Peru that already existed, they rehabilitate it because there's been some cataclysm. When they arrive, it's shrouded in darkness and flooded. And then they terraform it, and then they nurture life. It's a big project of recovery. And then they engineer human beings from a terrestrial species, a primate species probably already on planet Earth. And then they conflict with one another over how intelligent these human beings should be, how conscious should they be? How much technology should they be allowed? How healthy do we want them? What access are we going to allow them to food? What access to medical cures? How long-lived should they be? The moment you read Elohim in the plural, you realize these were all discussions and conflicts, and the human race was caught in the crossfire of these more powerful beings who were having these conversations. So one faction says we want the humans so unintelligent that they don't even know they're naked in other words like animals another faction says no they should be more like us we want to give them some intelligence so they can make some decisions for themselves have some judgment be that little bit more conscious another faction says no we don't want them like us another faction says don't let them live beyond 120 years we don't want too many of them Another faction says, no, it's no good. Let's just kill them all. And that's the story of the flood, which occurs all around the world. Another faction then arrives and hybridizes with the humans that have been hybridized already. 
And that second hybridization in Genesis 6 produces giants or titans, as the Greeks called them, or gods, as they're called in other cultures. And then another faction arrives and bombs a technological human race into oblivion in the story of Fable, a story which hints at the kind of technology that John Shaughnessy was talking about in the previous session. And so the picture that emerges, and you can find it in the Sumerian, in the Bible, in um, other Mesopotamian narratives, in the Greek, in the Norse, in the Celtic narratives, a sky council of various ET presences, various kinds of entities, some material, some energy-based and archonic, and they, in that council, have conflicting agendas. Some of them are here with very positive agendas towards humanity. They're here looking out for us. Others just want what the planet has to offer. To others, we're cattle. To others, we're vermin. And they sit in this uneasy truce with each other as they govern Project Earth. And the conflicts, as I say, how intelligent should the humans be? How conscious? What abilities should they be allowed? What technology should they have? Um, what level of health? What access to healthy food? What access to cures and medications? How long lived? And those conflicts recur in the mythologies of cultures around the planet. If you go to Nigeria and sit at the feet of the Efik people, they have the story of Abasi and Atai. And they arrive, they live in an island in the sky, some kind of a craft, and they engineer the first human beings. And in the beginning, the human beings have the level of intelligence of children, and they're allowed on the Earth's surface during the day, but then they come back to the island in the sky for sleep and for food. Then after a while, the human species has progressed, has developed, uh, they are more self-sufficient, and Abassi and Atai say, great, we can have a holiday. So they take some leave. When they return, they find the human beings have learned to farm and are building cities and are beginning to dominate the planet. Well, they've become so advanced, in fact, that Abassi and Atai say, we can't manage this, but we have lost all our power over these human beings. There are too many of them. They're too powerful. What are we going to do? And it's the female entity, Atai, who comes up with a solution. And it's brutal. She's going to release devices on planet Earth that will spread sickness, physical sickness and confusion, disease, mental ill health. And she says, if we keep them sick and worried, there'll be no threat. Now, when you hear these ancient stories and all these themes, it's easy to see the connections with the struggles of humanity in every generation. We hear these stories and we have to ask, has anything changed? These questions of how informed should we be? What level of consciousness? What level of education? What access to food? What access to health? What access to safe drinking water? These are all live issues in the 21st century. And the more of these world mythologies you read, the more you think, has anything changed? Were these mythologies written to teach us not so much about the past, but about the present? Not in purely to understand what happened before, but why things work the way they do today. 
And when you begin making those connections, the world mythologies become absolutely addictive and you, you can't leave them alone. You have to get into them. So here we have these, these stories of these beings, the Elohim, the powerful ones. When we confuse those stories with the story of a god, and we read the Elohim stories as if they're God stories, God turns into a monster, and we, we fragment our psychology. We become servile, lacking in hope, uh, depressed, and we have a God that can't be questioned, so it stops us thinking. So to recover the picture of these plurality of beings, is really important because we begin to shake ourselves free of the oppression that has come with that old vision of God that religion has run with for so long. Now, I've said that there's always folklore, that there are always um, indigenous paths of knowledge and information. And often these stories are more exciting, interesting and more empowering for human beings than the official religious ones. So how does that happen? How does world knowledge get fragmented in that way? And if our ancestors, the ones who wrote the original Elohim stories, knew that we live in a populated universe, knew that we've been visited and colonized, all that knowledge, how does it get forgotten? And how does it get suppressed? Well, for a case study, we're going to go back to South America. This time we'll go to Guatemala in 1700. And at that point, a Spanish priest called Francisco Jimenez, a Dominican friar, has just arrived in the mountain district of Chichicastenango. And he is a, a wonderful man. He is very uh, zealous in his work as a Dominican, which means he's a scholar and he loves reading old books and he loves the people that he's going to serve and he wins their trust. So much so that when he's been there a few years, some people bring him a very special text written in the ancient Quiche language. They give it to him and they say, this is our story of beginnings. And so in the years that followed, Francisco Jimenez worked to translate that text from ancient Quiche into Spanish. And the book that he wrote was called The Popol Vuh. Now, this alternative story of beginnings, the invaders have thought they'd got rid of because when they arrived in the early 1500s, um, they rounded up the local priesthoods and executed them. They rounded up all the alternative news outlets and shut them down because every invader needs to control the news. And the Catholic invaders were not just controlling the news, they were controlling history and what we would call prehistory. So all the alternative histories and prehistories had to come off the shelf, be gotten rid of, archived, burned, destroyed. What actually happens in a moment like that is that all that knowledge, all that information goes to two places. The best copies will get archived and sent back to HQ. So back to the King of Spain, back to the Pope in earlier ages, it would be back to the imperial libraries of the, the emperor. So the information is archived. So the religious elites back home know these old stories, but they're shut away in a library somewhere and every other copy has been burned or the local priesthoods, 
before they all get executed, find somewhere to hide them and bury them. And from that point on, it will be secret societies who know where the treasure is buried. So you've got two groups who know the old stories. You've got the religious elites, the, the papal libraries, the imperial libraries, and then you've got the secret societies who know where the texts are buried. Now, there are various moments in history when this sort of thing happens. There was another moment in the fourth century, 381 um, of the common era, Emperor Theodosius uh, effectively banned uh, the indigenous narratives of who we are, where we came from. And so if you had a book that taught something else, that would no longer be in the public libraries. If it was found, it would be archived or burned. And so again, those were buried. That's the story of the Gnostic Gospels, buried in the desert of the Nag Hammadi to keep them safe. So that's what happens. But this priest, Francisco Jimenez in the 1700s, was loved and trusted enough that they brought one of these saved and buried texts. He translated it and out comes this other story of who we all are and where we came from. It's another iteration of the Elohim story. Visitors from another planet arrive. The Popol Vuh calls them those who engineer. And it's the stories of Quetzalcoatl, uh, uh, otherwise known as Kukumats, um, the feathered serpent. Um, there's another name I've just, I've just forgotten. But through South America, through the Andes, that story is there. They arrived on a planet that already existed. It was flooded and shrouded in darkness. They nurtured life on Earth, and then they engineered a human species. And they had a few experiments at it, and uh, a few failed attempts. And the Popol Vuh says that the result of the failed attempts, um, it resulted in the ape-like creatures that live in the forest which is really intriguing because this is centuries ahead of Charles Darwin. And here's the Popol Vuh, hundreds of generations old, saying that we and apes share a common ancestor. We were part of the same project. So now we've got ET entities involving themselves in evolution on planet Earth. So back to what John Shaughnessy said, no, it, it didn't all just happen naturally. There was an intervention, there was an interference. Well, in the end, Quetzalcoatl, aka Kukumats, the feathered serpent, engineers a magnificent being, Homo sapiens Quetzalcoatlus, we'll call him. Us plus, us plus, these beings were able to remote view. They had telepathic communication. They were able to do precognition. Um, and those who engineered found they had created a being that was now a little bit difficult to manage. If you've got a, a creature that can remote view and has precognition, how are you going to herd them and, and get them to be your servants? It, it wasn't going to work out. They worked that out very quickly. And so they have an emergency conference and they find a way of dialing the human population down. They create a vapor, which when sprayed over human populations, damages our neurological abilities. Now, there'll be people listening today who are thinking, wait a minute, that sounds a bit familiar. Once again, we're thinking, has anything changed? Well, that's what they did back in the day. They created a vapor that would dumb us all down, down to the level that we operate at for most of the time now, where we're limited to our five natural senses. 
Now, what's very interesting about that story, you read that one and you realize there's a pattern in world mythologies around the world that talk about interventions in our evolution. The stories run that we were engineered, upgraded, upgraded. The, the so-called story of the fall in Genesis 3 is actually the story of an upgrade. And then the final step is a downgrade. You find a downgrade in Genesis 11 in the Bible. Here it is in the Popol Vuh with the vapor. There it is in the Nigerian story with the devices releasing sickness. And the downgrade brings us to the current level. Well, what's really interesting is that the cultures who curate that story of our beginnings have also curated shamanic and mystical modalities to upgrade us, to dial us back up. And there is a field of study, I won't go into it today, that's called Acquired Savant Syndrome. Acquired Savant, S-A-V-A-N-T, Syndrome. It's a real-world phenomenon studied by neurologists around the world. Google that, and you'll find today's scientific study of how it is that we're here when our brains suggest we can be here, and when sometimes an accident can knock us up to here. Well, the shamans and the mystics of Mesoamerica, of Aboriginal Australia, of Greece, of Celtic Europe, go anywhere around the world of Africa, they have modalities to dial us up, to re-upgrade us to a point where we are more intelligent, more conscious, where our capacities for remote viewing, telepathy, self-healing, precognition are elevated. Now, most of us, I think you could ask anyone, and they'll have a story where they've had a glimpse of precognition. They, they knew who was going to call. They knew something had happened to this person they know on the other side of the planet. Um, we have glimpses of it, and glimpses enough, maybe glimpses of self-healing, and we think, wow, could I develop that? Could I get better at that? And could that become a new normal if we learn how to turn that tap on? That's what mystical and shamanic traditions are all about, getting us into that more conscious, more intelligent state once again. And I'm going to give you some for instances. If you go to um, cultures that talk about an intervention in our evolution by Pleiadians, so for those stories, you might want to go to Aboriginal Australia, uh, to the original peoples of Australia or the Native American peoples, and they have smoke and smoking ceremonies. And they are very much into earthing, which is connecting yourself with the earth, with the electromagnetic field of the planet. And they do these things to heighten their consciousness. They do other things besides, but earthing is something that's very easy for any of us to do. Uh, just go barefoot. Go barefoot on the earth and you will be regularizing your electromagnetic field. It's good for your body because your body uses it for health good for your mind and good for your higher consciousness. It's something I've used ever since I realized earthing had fixed my sleep apnea. So I sleep on an earthing mat on my bed for that reason. Another modality, <clears throat> and you can find this in Greek orthodoxy, is that of controlled conscious breathing. I learned about this from a tradition called the Hesychast tradition controlled conscious breathing. And I found that through the use of that, 
I've been able to heighten my abilities in precognition, uh, telepathic connection, precognition. In fact, the kind of skills that any pastor needs to be able to um, access to some extent if they're going to be effective in their work. And that's why the Greek Orthodox valued it so much. But controlled conscious breathing, you don't have to be religious or spiritual to be into that. You can find it in cultures around the world, other religious traditions, and in non-religious traditions as well. I'm going to come back to how psychologists use controlled conscious breathing in a minute. Greek and Mesoamerican cultures produced psychoaffective teas. You may be familiar with the ayahuasca ceremony. Uh, you may have heard of the ancient Greek ceremony of Kaikion. They are both psychoaffective teas. And I was absolutely amazed when I discovered fairly recently that Plato, Plato, the great Greek philosopher, two and a half thousand years ago, now he's so important to Western thought that the whole of the Western philosophical tradition has been authoritatively described as no more than a series of footnotes to Plato. That's how important he is. Plato is very open about where he got some of his incredible knowledge from. A lot of it was from the application of logic to things we all observe. And he called that philosophy. We might call it science. He also talked about ancestral knowledge, which had been passed to him through the generations, through a student, all the way back to the ancient Egyptian priesthood, which had become a banned priesthood, but the knowledge had survived, like I said before. And then he talked about the Kaikion ceremony, the psycho-effective tea. And Plato said that from that source, he got these pieces of knowledge. I'll just run through the things he learned from this tea ceremony. That there are extra-dimensional beings who interact with us, sometimes without us knowing, and who interact with us when we die. And part of their agenda is to help us free ourselves from fear. Because if you don't want to spend your life on planet Earth all depressed and servile and with no hope and no power, then just remain in a state, remain in a state of fear and it'll keep you in all those things. Get rid of fear, you can escape those things. Plato was very strong on that. He said he learned it from interdimensional beings. From the psychoaffective T, he learned that there are extraterrestrial beings as well, called the children of God, who intervened in our evolution as a species to upgrade our capacity for consciousness and intelligence. That's the Genesis 3 story. That's the Pope or Vu story. Plato got it from drinking a tea. He also said that he learned that there are pan-dimensional beings who download the cosmic codes to generate material phenomena. So now we're into the holographic universe or the matrix. And these entities then download the codes to create everything we see, hear, feel, and touch. They create things like galaxies and planets and so once again, what John Shaughnessy was saying, he described them as geoengineers. Plato called them craftsmen or the demiurge. He also talked about ET neighbors who live on islands in the sky and have an advanced knowledge of the cosmos. But Plato's big message was that you and I must break free of fear. That while we're under fear, it will spoil our lives 
it has an impact on what happens to us after this life and it means we're very easy to manipulate and in 2020 i think plato's message of get rid of fear and move towards love uh, couldn't be more important and so i want to emphasize that today for that reason plato came to that through his ingestion of tea now in his books he writes in the name of socrates this comes out in his book Phaedo and his book Timaeus and Critias, and he writes those as dialogues as if it's the teaching of Socrates. But Plato's description of the psychoaffective tea is so internalized that I think most readers would say, mm -mm -mm, Plato, this was your experience. These are your conclusions. And I'd recommend those books. It takes a little while to get used to the style, but very rewarding if you persist with it. I'm going to come back now to controlled conscious breathing because it reflects on who we are and what our potential is. Controlled conscious breathing, there are many different versions of it, was used by the Harvard professor John Mack. He was the head of Harvard's Department of Clinical Psychology. The American Department of Defense brought an assignment to him. They wanted him to assess the psychology of defense personnel who had reported experiences of close encounters with ETs, abductions and experiences of harvesting or hybridization, involvement in a hybridization program. Now, essentially, the defense forces wanted to know, are these guys sane? Are they safe to fly? And so John Mack studied them, and he studied more than 50 people with reports like this. Excuse me a moment. <clears throat> He got them to do controlled conscious breathing, which took them into a state of um, deep, deep relaxation. And then he'd say, now you're back on the 11th of February where you saw this thing, just tell me what you're seeing. And then they'd describe the encounter. <clears throat> and then he'd ask them secondary questions. He'd say things like, turn your head to the left. Tell me what you can see. Just look up now, what can you see? And with these supplementary questions, he got this other layer of detail. And he started noticing that this other layer of detail was the same across these 50 people that he was interviewing. And it was that that clued him that they had had an objective experience and that they had experienced the same objective thing. So that was the conclusion he brought back. Well, Harvard was a bit embarrassed when they realized what he'd put in his report. And the Department of Defense was a little bit embarrassed, too. But what he had brought back was essentially to say, there's no pathology in these people. They are psychologically sound, and they're experiencing something objective and real that merits further study. In fact, what they were reporting, experiences of, of abduction and use for hybridization, is not a new story. If you visit the mythologies and ancestral narratives of people all around the planet culture after culture will tell you that story go to ghana and they will tell you about mamiwata abductions and this is where people are taken they are taken to bases under the sea and they are used for hybridization and then after a few years they're returned 
and sometimes they're healthier when they return than when they went away this story you can find on the east coast of africa uh, it's the mahurani story i believe in kenya you can find it down the east coast to the southernmost tip of south africa all up the western seaboard of africa into the caribbean brazil cuba haiti and as far east as the philippines and then go into europe and you'll hear celtic stories of the same there are scottish versions of the story welsh irish they all have different names for it if you go to the philippines they will talk to you about the encantos and the dili ingonato they often refer to these entities indirectly as those unlike us those who dwell under the sea but the narrative is the same people are taken they're used for hybridization and then they're returned so people can read these mythologies and some might want to say well is this just a mythological telling of the story of human trafficking of slavery well no because that's not the pattern of human slavery we don't take people use them for hybridization and return them healthier three years later it's a totally different pattern and the correlations are really astonishing all around the world my friend gl davies has just published a wonderful book called harvest i absolutely recommend it where he has studied just a small district in wales uh, and just a small short period of time since the 1970s and the concentration of stories of close encounters in pembrokeshire in wales is incredible and he's drilled down into a particular abduction story i'd recommend harvest and the story that's told there, as I say, it's ages old. You can find it all around the world and all through the centuries. And yet, the story of abduction seems to be an aspect of uh, the ET narrative that people really struggle with and think, I can't take that seriously at all. And if we hear about it on the TV, we think that person's nuts. Surely they're just self-publicists, they're delusional. But this story is the most widely recurring theme in our ancestral narratives. Every culture has it, it's in every age. Why are we so reactive against it when every culture has the same thing to tell us? Now, I mentioned that because you have to ask why. Why would an advanced species possibly want to hybridize with us? Now, Bible readers will know this story because it's there in Genesis 6. This advanced species, the Bene Elohim, ones like the powerful ones, turn up from out of the blue and interbreed with human beings, and they produce the Nephilim, the giants, what the Greek call titans, or what we might call demigods in other traditions. Why would they want to do that? Well, the Bible says that these Bene Elohim, ones like the powerful ones, looked at the human females and said, they're beautiful let's have some of that what was the beauty that attracted them a psychologist who is really continuing the clinical work of john mack today is a lady called barbara lamb she uses exactly the same methods that john mack did and she has more than two thousand case studies of people who have had or reported close encounters and many of them are reports of abduction for hybridization and as she's explored those case studies she's explored the question of why would an advanced species want to 
hybridize with human beings? The answer is that there is something special about human beings that is attractive to our neighbors in a populated universe. There is something unique about the fusion of our animal, our mammal heritage with a higher consciousness that has created a unique kind of being. I believe that our animal, our mammal emotionality wedded with this higher consciousness results in a being with a very special capacity for compassion, love, creativity, and it makes our lives far more colorful and exciting and interesting. It can make our lives very painful and frustrating as well, but there's a dimensionality to the human experience that I believe other beings find very attractive. And that is why they want some of what we have. The Mami Water story of Ghana is that these other beings want to improve their species with what we have. What would be unique? I've, I've made a suggestion already that our mammal emotionality plus higher consciousness gives us an ability for um, love, creativity, compassion. It's not hard to imagine. I think often we think of neighbors as being more advanced. I don't think that's necessary. That they might have more advanced tech doesn't mean they're better than us. And there are some very special things about Earth life forms. Think about what we get from our, our animal heritage. I mean, dogs have better remote viewing. They're more telepathic, uh, better medical diagnostic skills. Birds often have faster problem-solving skills. They're very good at maths. They've got a better sense of direction. Some of them are very faithful in relationships, more so than us sometimes. Cats can certainly see things we can't. Any cat owner, I know Omar, you'll know this, they can see things we can't see. Uh, octopuses are incredibly loving. They sacrifice themselves for their children. It's easy for me to believe that our animal heritage, our mammal emotionality, wedded with higher consciousness, makes us a very special species indeed. And so to raise our consciousness, what does that mean? There are many avenues, therefore, we can take. Now, Plato believed that in the beginning, I'm watching the clock, in the beginning was consciousness. This is something that um, quantum is beginning to teach us, that consciousness is really the real thing, the prime organizing principle of the universe. In the beginning was a unified field of consciousness, intelligence, love, order. And then it fractalized into the material universe. This is what Plato had to say. And we are part of that story. And so he believed that we are aspects of cosmic consciousness. Then we individuate and incarnate as human beings. And we have this human experience. And while we're in the material experience, we are all wrestling with the one question. It's the question the universe is wrestling with. Can we do consciousness, intelligence, love and harmony as a society of individuals exercising free choice? That's the great question of life. We wrestle with it in this life and then we return to union with cosmic consciousness and we go on from there.
that was Plato's view. It's the view I've come to. It's a view I find paralleled in the Gospels as well. So if we want to heighten our consciousness, what we want to do is increase our appreciation of our unity with the cosmos, with one another, our unity with the cosmic source. And any modality that helps you to do that will raise your consciousness. I talked about these other modalities, the smoke and smoking ceremonies, earthing, controlled conscious breathing. The Celts had other exercises too, designed to center yourself, to bring you back into your body, to make you conscious with everything you have, all your senses, physical senses and beyond. And that raises our level of consciousness. What I've just said about Campbell heritage also explains why mystical and shamanic traditions often work to, con to enhance our connection with animals, to enhance our animal spirit. And you can find figures like Francis of Assisi in the West, Seraphim of South on the e in the East, who clearly have enhanced their affinity with animals. And I'd encourage anyone to have a pet for that reason and learn to talk to animals because this is actually improving your state of being and your state of consciousness. We are a beautiful, sovereign species, and we can be so much more than we are if we will release ourselves from fear, from the feudalized religious ideas that put us under the power of an abusive God. Goodness, could you do any more to lower the vibrational energies of human beings than a story like that? release ourselves from fear, see ourselves as something beautiful in the panoply of beings in a populated universe. Learn from our ancestors and their stories of beginnings. Learn from our mystical and shamanic traditions. And I believe if we can do that, then we can live better as human beings on planet Earth. Escaping from Eden says it's all there in the book of Genesis. When translated right, when you know how to look, well, let's find out who we are. Let's find out the story. Let's find out what planet we're on. And let's learn how to live a better life together in the light of all that. Thanks, Omar, for having me today. It's been great to be part of the conversation and look forward to dialoguing. Thank you, Paul. That was uh, fantastic. I uh, really uh, love your message of uh, love because, uh, you know, that's really is the only answer to all our problems here on Earth. We just have so much division amongst us, right? Uh, whether it comes to uh, education, politics, uh, sports teams, uh, whether it's business or whether it's jobs, it just seems that every turn and every corner that we take, there's always this competition and always this um, division that's always caused between us. And the thing that we all need to come to understand, as you were saying, is that this division has been placed upon us so that we don't progress or we don't you know, evolve spiritually and we don't evolve consciously because they want to keep us in this state of dumbed down. You know, as you were saying earlier, you know, they have this mist where, you know, they go around and they'll spray us and they keep us in this dumbed down state. And when you were saying that, you know, the, uh, the thought came to me of fluoride, 
that uh, we have in water, we have in toothpaste today, and we know that that's very damaging for our third eye. So it seems to me is that the agenda of the old is just has a new twist on it, just with a little bit more technology and to keep us even more dumbed down. Because if we have plaque over our third eye, then we're not going to be intuitively uh, involved with ourselves, with our humanity, uh, with our families, uh, you know, with anyone for that matter, because, uh, you know, the third eye is just not working. Exactly. This has no fluoride in it. It's not tap water. Uh, I use pure water that has no chlorine, no fluoride. I use fluoride-free toothpaste for all the reasons that you've just said. And this is why access to safe water, access to healthy food is so important. Because as you rightly point out, there's a physical item in our brains that has to be healthy for us to operate in this healthy, conscious, intuitive way. And so I just would affirm everything you just said. <clears throat> That's absolutely correct. You know, especially up here in uh, North America, uh, you know, you just said uh, we need to eat uh, better food because, you know, we are what we eat, right? And then it seems that up here in North America, there's this, seems to be there's this agenda that's happening to where they want to give us, you know, unhealthy food, uh, GMO food, uh, genetically modified foods. Like there's some foods here in North America, which in European countries, they just won't have it on their shelves at all. Uh, like uh, Heinz ketchup, for instance, uh, in Europe is considered poison, but in North America, they celebrate it, right? So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just like really, really bizarre as to, you know, what they're doing. You know, it's almost like a, a geo, um, you know, social experiment here in North America where, you know, they have us on this one particular diet, this one particular food, and then you go to the other parts of the world and, you know, they're, they're eating real food, right? Fresh food. I had a friend of mine, uh, Neil Gore, from uh, Portal to Ascension, and two years ago he was in Jordan. Uh, he went to a friend of his, uh, or sorry, I think it was his cousin's wedding, and he's like, uh, man, I'm like losing so much weight out here, and I'm eating tons and tons and tons of bread. Right. But you, if you eat that very same bread here in North America, right, you're just you're going to become obese. Uh, you know, you're going to have uh, diabetes, uh, you know, strokes, heart attacks, kidney problems, liver problems. Uh, you know, it's just insane, Paul. Right. It, it just I, I can't put my you know, thought process on that as to like why they would do that to us. Uh, maybe you have an answer for that. Well, I think it's part of the same uh, struggles that we read in the mythologies where um, controlling the food supply is part of how we are managed. I'm really grateful for the experience of my grandparents and seeing how they lived through the depression of the 1930s and how much of their own food they produced out of their own backyards. Um, my maternal grandparents had a strip garden and they were one of a group of I think 16 sort of terraced houses and they all grew different things in their backyards and then simply through sharing it wasn't a barter arrangement it was totally informal they just shared what they had and they produced so much food that got them through those years of depression and it meant for a start they weren't as dependent on money uh, on cash as we are and it also meant that they had access to clean food that hadn't been interfered with i mean today when i go into the supermarket i can't smell the oranges 
No. I can't smell the bread. Uh, if I can't smell those things, it means they do not have the nutritional value that the real thing has. It yeah. means they've been modified. And that's without going into GM and suicide gene and all the rest of it, which is absolutely terrible. But I do think that the more control you and I, our families and friends, can get over our food and our water, the more we can produce for ourselves, uh, the better we're going to fare, especially in times to come. Sounds like your grandparents were uh, practicing uh, what uh, Michael Tallinger calls uh, Ubuntu. And, uh, you know, I really like that when you said that. That was the first thing that really rang in my head was Ubuntu. You know, you're community living and, uh, you know, you, you grow tomatoes, somebody else grows potatoes, and somebody else grows carrots. And at, at the harvest time, the whole community comes together and shares. And there's no competition. There's no division. Everyone has uh, what they need in order for them to survive and not have that stress level there of, you know, am I going to eat tonight? Is my family going to eat tonight? Uh, you know, once you eliminate that, then the body and the mind and, you know, your spirituality, your consciousness will be far more healthier than, you know, having to worry about, you know, am I going to eat tonight? Are my children going to eat tonight? Or, you know, what am I eating? Uh, you know, so for me, you know, when you said that, you know, I really, really, really resonated with that. And, you know, I just smiled when you said that. I was like, nice. That is, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, people across the world are not doing that. And this is something that we all need to begin doing especially here in North America when, you know, it almost seems like they've weaponized our food. And by what I mean by that weaponizing is that now they've almost made it illegal for you to grow food in your backyard. So if you have a garden, they'll come along and they'll tear it down or they'll give you a fine. Uh, you can't collect rainwater. They want you to drink that fluoride water that they have. And, you know, they'll throw you in jail for this kind of stuff, which is, you know, extremely unfortunate. Yes, I think we really need to uh, resist that. I think that's completely absurd. And I would still want to see a political response to that. It is just inhuman to forbid people to have access to rainwater, uh, and especially if it's on their own land. But you shouldn't be depriving any human being of rainwater. And again, if you can't grow food on your own land, that, that is indefensible. And I would like to see more of our politicians who um, are not uh, part of the corruption, if I can just put it plainly, to be mm -hmm. willing to stand up and not permit that to happen because it is an attack on humanity. It absolutely is. And, uh, you know, I don't even call them uh, politicians anymore. I call them lobbyists uh, because essentially that's what they are. They're lobbying for the industries and they're lobbying for pharmaceutical uh, mafias, I call them. Uh, you know, they just uh, they don't seem to have the interest of the people in mind when they run for office and then they lie to people, tell them, yeah, we'll do this for you and we'll do that for you. But as soon as they get into office, uh, you know, everything is out the wayside and that's it. And then they become lobbyists, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's a crime against humanity. Uh, it's not only happening here so, in Canada. Omar, is that true even where you live? I thought you lived somewhere nice. 
No, it's very true right here too in British Columbia, Canada. Um, you know, we like to think that uh, you know we have uh, healthy-minded politicians here, but uh, unfortunately, we don't. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, our premier uh, here in British Columbia, his name is uh, John Horgan, and uh, he had uh, one year left in his uh, mandate. And uh, you know, there was uh, an election that happened on the east coast in Nova Scotia, and uh, the premier from uh, that province, uh, you know, he got a majority government when before he had a minority government because you know people think that he's doing a good job on covid so john horgan here on the west coast you know even though he had one year left in his mandate decided to call a snap election because he's doing a power grab right and he doesn't have the interest of people in mind especially with the covid going you know for people to go out and vote in these, uh, you know, wherever they want us to vote, you know, for me, you know, what I thought was that this is a power grab and, you know, this election could have waited until next year because he already still had a year left on his mandate. So for that, you know, I feel that that's like extremely corrupted and uh, I can't support something like that. That's very sad. Indeed it is, my friend. Uh, you know, I really uh, like your comment that you said uh, cats can see uh, things that uh, we can't. And uh, currently I'm uh, writing a book called uh, Earth Frequency. And uh, I talk about that uh, in my book where, you know, I say, you know, there are these beings that are cohabiting with us on this planet, but because of their vibrational distortion, they're out of our visual spectrum range so that we can't see them, but our cats, they can. And, uh, you know, these forces, you know, some people want to call them archons and some people want to call them different names, but what they're doing is that they're feeding off of our dense energy. So when you have your cat that's like sitting there looking up at the wall or looking at a roof or, you know, chasing something around the house, we just think, oh, the cat's going crazy. But in actual reality, that cat is interacting with something and is trying to warn us that this being that we can't see is there and that we should conscious breathe in order to, you know, repel this attack that is about to come onto us. Yes, I, I agree with that. And I think uh, something I try to be very conscious of, and it's the reason I, I wear this, is conscious of my mood and my state of mind, because the mythologies that talk about archons uh, in the Gnostic tradition say that they are energy-based beings that feed off our lower vibrational energies. They feed off anger. They feed off anxiety. Icons love this depressing religious story that's get put got put on so much of humanity. And I can see iconic involvement in warfare, conflicts. You can see it when there's violence in and around sports, so on and so forth. And so if ever I'm thinking, we've got company here that I can't see, what I focus on is what is my energy right now? Because if I'm in depression or in fear, I'm, I'm going to be fed on. But if I can be a proactive, positive, sovereign, loving being and be that and project that, I actually believe that is one of the greatest protections we can provide for ourselves and our families and our friends. Because these entities are always there waiting to feed on the negative stuff. And the awareness of it, this is why it's great to have a cat, the awareness of it, or to wear something like this to keep it on your mind, the awareness of it can keep us very deliberate about what emotional state we put ourselves into. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, when you are mad or, uh, you know, you uh, begin to hate on someone or something for that matter, uh, you know, these things will appear and, uh, you know, and they'll begin to feed off of your dense, very dense energy. Um, I forgot, uh, I think it was John Juan Mathis uh, that uh, spoke about, uh, you know, these energetic beings uh, who have uh, come to the earth and they're essentially uh, rearing us like we rear chickens for food and uh, you know and that that really resonated with me and then I you know and that really is what opened up my eyes to this archonic force that uh, you know that we simply can't see and we can't interact with but it interacts with us right and uh, you know and the fear base that's uh, you know that it's created right through uh, political means uh, through uh, sports uh, through uh, you know just the uh, societal structure that's been set up to where you know if a person wants to you know, get ahead in life, it seems that every corner that they turn, there's a hurdle there to uh, bring them back down to the ground so that they don't, you know, raise their vibration so that they don't achieve their goals. Because we know that when you achieve your goals, you become very happy. Uh, you become, uh, you know, your self-confidence shoots through the roof. Uh, people around you feel that. And it seems that they don't want that for us. And they just drop us to the ground again and again and again. You know, it comes with education, comes with schooling, work, you name it, it's it's there. Exactly. I, I think that's quite right. And you can, what, what you're saying about the the interruption of goals is, is really interesting because I think one of the things that governments, um, it sounds so cynical to say this, but it's not my cynicism. It is, it is the way things work, that governments are very conscious about how much hope that people have because uh, too little is dangerous and too much is dangerous. But I think where they want our level of hope is probably lower than is really healthy for a human being. I feel the same way because, uh, you know, especially with their agents, with the media, you know, every single night and every single morning and every day, 24 hours a day, they're just constantly hammering us with bad news, right? And then now I saw something, yeah. you know, yeah, a lot of fear. And, you know, I saw something disturbing uh, the other day. Uh, you know, I heard that uh, NBC News was creating a newscast for children. And uh, they were going to start delivering the type of news that they deliver to us, to children, dedicated directly towards them. And for me, that's unacceptable because, uh, you know, we don't want our children living in fear. No, that's right. I'm very conscious about what news uh, we share with our kids. Uh, during this COVID period, we've been... Mm -hmm. uh, careful to keep our kids informed without overwhelming them with the horrible uh, litany of uh, ghastly messaging uh, on the hour, every hour, uh, you know, on every news channel. Uh, at the same time, I, I do want my kids to, um, to live in the world, to be equipped to live in a world where they can't believe everything they're told. And so they are somewhat aware, for instance, my kids are um, 6, 10, soon to be 12, and they're somewhat aware <laughs> of what's happening in the American election, who the candidates are, what are the issues we're dealing with in Australia at the moment, enough so that they can learn they have to think for themselves fend for themselves not trust every politician that they ever hear from on the tv 
but not so much that they feel disempowered, depressed, hopeless, and terrified. Mm -hmm. And if we let them watch the kind of news channel you're describing, that's that's where they'd end up. Yeah, you know, when my kids were that age, as uh, your kids are, um, I just never allowed my kids to watch, uh, you know, mainstream television. Uh, you know, I got them videos. Uh, I got them movies. Uh, you know, I downloaded movies for them. I downloaded kids shows for them. Uh, I just simply kept them away from uh, mainstream TV. In fact, for years and years and years, I didn't even have cable. And I still don't have cable uh, for the simple fact that uh, it's not good for you. Right. Uh, if I want to, you know, watch TV, I'll go and watch some YouTube, and uh, you know, beyond that, I don't think uh, kids need to be exposed to the harshness of the media and what they expose our children to via their, you know, commercials and kind of what have you. I couldn't believe when I was visiting in the states how. I mean, I grew up in, in England, and the tradition in England is that you have awful news that that's got worse. And then you'll have a funny story at the end. Well, the American version of that seemed to be uh, that every day in the news, you'd have to have something to terrorize you. Is your tap water killing you? I mean, I don't like tap water, but, you know, it'll be a story like that. Mm -hmm. Might your cat be giving you a disease from which you'll never recover? How safe is it to breathe when you walk outside the house? <laughs> every day there'll be something to make you feel harassed, disabled, terrified, and just wanting to curl up in a corner and die. And they seem to find this entertaining in the news programs that they put out uh, in the States. I don't know if it's changed. I hope it has. But this idea of horror as entertainment in news format shows I don't go anywhere near it. And uh, very often, I'll turn the radio on in the car, wanting some music. It'll be on a news channel. And as soon as the kids hear the news, they'll say, oh, turn that off. And I love that they have that <laughs> replay. <laughs> That's a good start point. I listen to uh, a lot of conscious music. Uh, I find that uh, it helps activate my right brain and uh, you know it regresses energy and uh, it elevates my my uh, consciousness I find and helps me connect uh, with the environment that I'm interacting with and when I turn on uh, mainstream news or anything like that I just find that instantly uh, my mood changes and uh, and I, I don't like the feeling of that. I agree. And something else I didn't mention earlier with, with mystical modalities and earthing, but uh, sunlight. Uh, I think we've been made to be uh, terrified of sunlight. Is, is the sunlight going to kill you? Is the sunlight going to give you skin cancer? The mm -hmm. fact is we all need a certain amount of sunlight on us for our bodies to process the vitamins it needs, for our bodies to have the endorphins we need to feel happy. And I have now come to believe that a relationship with sunlight is actually foundational to health at every level, mental health, spiritual, consciousness, physical. And I'm very conscious of beginning every day dosing myself up with sunlight before I do anything else. Yeah, you know, I, I do the same thing. Uh, you know, I've been doing it for a few months now. Actually, you're the one that... Uh, 
uh, got me onto it. I watched one of your videos and uh, you were talking about earthing. And uh, I was like, my God, I have to, uh, I really have to try that. So now every morning I get up and uh, I go outside and uh, I go lean up against my tree and uh, I'm barefoot and I just let the sun just beam on me. And uh, I allow that energy to uh, come into me, go through me. And I find that over the last couple of months, you know, I'm feeling a lot healthier than uh, than I did previous to when I wasn't earthing. So, uh, you know, thank you very much for, you know, leading me in that direction, Paul. Oh, that's great to hear. I'm really pleased to hear that. Uh, it's something I've got into, my wife has got into just in the last few years. And it's funny, I can just remember reading little bits and pieces through the years where it talked about cultures of people who used to do this and the anthropologists would always say something a bit dismissive about it, like, oh, well, these, these people were sun worshippers and they mm -hmm. thought the sun was God or something like that. And now I realize, no, they just understood how a human being functions and that our relationship with the sun is absolutely foundational. Yeah, and we also know that uh, there are some uh, people uh, around the world that do uh, sun gazing. And, uh, you know, and some of these people, uh, you know, they haven't eaten in years, all right? They're, uh, they're getting their energy directly from the sun, and they just don't need any sustenance. I have heard that. I, I like food too much. Uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm a I'm a trained chef, so I, you know I can't uh, get away from food. <laughs> I actually think food is uh, good. Food is one of the best things about the human experience. And and often my wife and I will just look at each other during a meal we're enjoying, and we'll say that isn't this one of the best things about being a human? It absolutely is, you know, but we're talking about the five senses and uh, earlier on, Michael Feely was talking about, uh, you know, it is our choice uh, to uh, come here on the earth and uh, have this human experience. And, you know, I've always felt that coming to earth, incarnating here on earth is more like a vacation uh, because in our natural form, we're, we are energy. And uh, when we take this physical corporeal form, right, the pleasures come along with that is just uh, magnificent you know you get to smell the flowers uh, you know you get to eat food and you know and other pleasures that uh, come with having this physical form I agree I think that is one of the things that others in the universe find attractive about the human condition I'm sure there are things that when we uh, shuffle off this mortal coil to use that phrase we'll think oh what a relief that is but uh, <laughs> I think there are things that are unique and special to this experience and we really should make the most of it while we have it. I believe so as well and uh, I think uh, the only way to uh, really achieve that, Paul, is uh, through love, understanding, uh, compassion and, uh, you know, there's no other way. You know, if we deviate from those three things, then uh, I feel that uh, not only our human experience is ruined, but those who we interact with in that negative form, their human experience is also compromised. Exactly. I think that's the lesson we're all learning. That's, that really is, that's the meaning of the journey you've just described.
I feel the same way, Paul. I want to thank you very much, Paul, for uh, coming on to our Ishwara conference today. I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, you have a you know a beautiful heart, beautiful mind, and uh, you know some uh, very powerful information which uh, you know people uh, really should pay attention to. And uh, you know, I'm actually still waiting for your book to show up. I ordered it uh, like two weeks ago, and uh, I was hoping to have it for uh, like yesterday. And uh, so today I could uh, you know kind of show it like the books that I've been showing today from Michael Feely and John Shaughnessy. So uh, watch, <laughs> it's going to show up tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show mine instead. Escaping from Eden. Uh, hopefully, uh, others will get their copies faster. I guess it just depends where you live. And you can go to paulanthonywallace.com. That's my website, or the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube, or the Fifth Kind TV, and you can keep up with uh, what I'm up to. But Omar, thanks so much for having me today. It's been a real pleasure to be part of the conference. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much, Paul. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to uh, engaging with you in the future. Definitely. Same. All have yourself a, a wonderful day. Uh, I know you have some celebrations going on there. So uh, I you. will uh, let you go and uh, carry on with your uh, day and with your beautiful family. Thank you. All the best, Omar. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Paul. All right, guys. That was uh, Paul Anthony Wallace.